All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning, good morning. Open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 16. Um, In your digital notes or your paper notes, the title of this sermon is God is always up to something. God is always up to something. Uh, A typical experience for most followers of Christ um, goes something like this. Uh, First and foremost, you have some kind of difficulty in your life. You have a tragedy. You have an unmet expectation. If you haven't had that yet, well, just wait. And so uh, ultimately in this unmet expectation, um, you have a crisis. Um, The less mature you are or the shorter amount of time you have walked with God, this becomes a crisis of faith where when the difficulty happens, you wag your finger at God, you point to him and you say, you did not meet my expectations. If you loved me, you would. How could you? And then what happens if you have really trusted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, which means you will endure, you will emerge out of this, you ultimately come out of this on the other end. And as you look back, as you reflect on the difficulty, on the crisis, on the emergence of this trial, here's what you often do. You look back and you say, you are a genius. God, you, you have blown my mind. I did not think you could have taken this difficulty and brought this kind of good out of it. And then guess what happens when you get to the point of praise? Difficulty. And the rhythm, the cycle starts all over again. And especially I find that like when you're in the praise part of it, you come into the worship service and you're just like, I am so pumped to worship God and to exalt Jesus. But it's a very different story when you're in the middle of crisis, isn't it? You come in here burdened, you come in here distracted. And here's what we tell people, give it time. The Lord will show you his genius in this process. And inevitably, you'll emerge out of it. Inevitably, you'll look back at the mastermind, genius planning strategy of God, and you will give him worship behind everything that God allows, ordains, or permits is a strategic plan that will leave you speechless. Behind everything that God allows, ordains, or permits is a strategic plan that if you can emerge, if you can wait, that will leave you absolutely speechless. So point number one in your notes, very simple. He always, always, always has a plan. I want to to read to you from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, because the context um, of this, in this whole passage this morning, is going to be Holy Week. Uh, It's going to be the week of Palm Sunday, followed by Passover, followed by Resurrection Sunday. And what's happening here is that a city of typically, we'll say, 40,000 people living in one square mile is going to swell to about 250,000 people. Those would be more conservative Estimates. Now, I want you to just take a moment and I want you to empathize with the surroundings. I want you to think about the water or lack thereof. The food, you have to bring your own water, bring your own food, but let's get a little bit more disgusting, shall we? Um, sewage, mud, the blood and the carcass of not just one, not just 10, not just 100, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs and animals sacrificed. No showers, people traveling from all over the area, sometimes 10, 20, 100, maybe even more miles traveling for weeks just to be at this event called Passover, this yearly annual Jewish celebration. 
Um, you can imagine when you travel, do you get a little bit grumpy? Yes, you do. Come on, for the most part, especially if you've got little kids running with you, right? You can imagine that this could actually be a very difficult, tense time for many people. And Jesus is going, coming to Jerusalem, and his entrance into Jerusalem is called the triumphal entry. In fact, um, throughout the Gospels, you might see this as a header in your Bible that Jesus is triumphantly entering into this. Um, this triumphal entry actually is found in all four of the Gospels. It's a really pivotal and central point and moment in understanding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, here's what it says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want to draw your attention to two phrases here. Number one, to be taken up. This was written after the execution of Jesus, and it's referencing the fact that Jesus was actually crucified, was taken up and put onto a cross. But here's the idea. What you're seeing here is that there was a plan that was put in place, and that this plan had a necessary culmination, and that was Jesus being taken up. And then here's what you find with Christ. Christ knows the plan. He understands explicitly what is going to happen to him and when the time is. And when Jesus understands that it is time for him ultimately to be executed, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. This is a, this is a phrase that means he is completely resolute and determined and nothing is going to stop him. And here, here's what you have to understand. This might be a new concept for some of you who are newer to church, but Jesus is on a singular mission. And that mission is to die. Jesus has one goal for this week. And this week is to set his face to Jerusalem and then ultimately to die. Now, your Bibles, you're in Matthew chapter 16. Go to verse 21. We are five chapters before the triumphal entry, five chapters before um, Palm Sunday. And here's what we see, that God has a meticulous plan. Verse 21, here's what it says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go. Now, I want you to watch the verbs here. He must do a handful of things. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Now, just not randomly, but he's going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These are the religious leaders, the religious elites. They are controlling the Jewish culture of the day. And not only this, but his suffering is going to culminate with his execution, and he must be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised again. Now, did Jesus communicate with clarity to his disciples the plan? The answer is yes. Did they get it? No. Like, how, dense as a doornail, right? So Peter is like all up in arms about this. So he hears the message, and rather than hearing a plan, he hears an opportunity to puff up his chest and show, I think positively, his loyalty to Jesus. And here's what he says in verse 22. Peter took him aside. I appreciate the subtleness of, subtleness of, is that a word? Subtleness. And he began, whatever, to rebuke him, saying... Far be it from you, Lord. FYI, if Jesus tells you he's going to do something, <laughs> don't look at him and say, look, I know you're the Messiah, I know you're God, you know, whatever, but you really don't know what you're talking about because, like, I'm really smart. Do you know how old I am? Like, I'm, like, 21 years old at this time, and, like, I really have the whole world together, so Jesus, take a cue from me. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. At this point... Jesus is like, you know what? 
You, Peter, you have your brain set on your plans, your expectations, your script, and it's not mine. And and actually, Jesus has an incredibly, powerfully strong rebuke for him, and many of you know this already, because all Peter could see was today, but Jesus was up to something bigger. He says this, get behind me, Satan, literally, adversary. Your obsession with your plans and your script, you're getting in the way. I am always up to something better than you have in your mind. And I understand that this plausible future that I've just scripted for you feels devastating. But hear me, you will get to the other side of this and you will be left speechless and you will give me glory and you will with a genuine heart say, you are a pure and utter genius. But he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You and I, we may not like God's plans, but they are non-negotiable. One of the things that I've come to to grips with in my life is that I have so many plans, ideas, expectations, strategies, vision. I've got a plan for my life and your life and the church and everything in between, right? And very rarely are they his plans, by the way. And so what I've had to learn for, this has been a hard lesson for me and I find it's a hard lesson for most of humanity is that it doesn't matter at the end of the day what I want that what is, is most, most relevant, what the only thing that matters is, Michael, what does Jesus want? Like I can be in the middle of a difficulty and I can say, I want this difficulty resolved and I want it resolved in this way and with this outcome. But that doesn't matter. What actually matters is, Jesus, why did you allow, ordain, or permit this? A, B, what do you want out of this? And C, what's my next step? And do you ever notice in the middle of it, he almost never tells you how it's gonna turn out. It's always like, it's gonna be fine. All things work out for good, for the good of those who love him. And then you say, yeah, that's a cliche. That doesn't mean anything. If you don't believe that, you will never emerge with faith. You actually hold on to these promises and you get to the other side and you look back and you're like, you are a pure and utter genius. Uh, Here's a question for you. If God came to you and he said this, um, I would like your permission to bring the following difficulty into your life. Now you find the difficulty in your own personal life, fill in the blank. Do I have your permission? And what would you say? Well, everything in you wants to say, um, under no circumstances, right? Because if God asked your permission before he did anything, we would be a constant hindrance to him, getting in the way, because his plans are always better. And the path between here and his plan is almost always difficult. When we set a plan, we want to make the path between here and our preferred future the easiest, simplest path humanly possible. Have you ever noticed that the distance between here and God's preferred future for your life is almost always hard? Anybody ever see that? Am I the only one who feels like all the greatest things in life and all the things that God wants to do are done through trial and struggle and trust and faith? And then I get to the other side of it and I step back and I'm like, you are a pure and utter genius. Like if I had my way, I would have been a hindrance to all all of your plans. But here's what I know. God always, always, always has a plan. Which brings, brings us to point number two. 
God's plans don't always make sense. I almost wanted to say God's plans rarely ever make sense at first. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, verse one. This is where the triumphal entry, uh, Palm Sunday takes place. Verse one, here's what it says. Now when they, Jesus and the disciples, they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Does this feel like theft to anyone in this room, right? Yes, Jesus anticipates this and says, if anybody says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and then they will blindly follow you and let you do whatever, they, whatever you want with their most prized possessions. This is like an automobile and it's like, Jesus needs it. Okay, whatever you say, that's, that's what happens. And he, he will send them at once. Now what you're, you're gonna find is that all throughout the disciples' ministry with Jesus, he is constantly, regularly asking them to do very weird, very strange things. Like this is kind of par for the course with Jesus. But Jesus has already, over and over and over again, proven himself to be a strategic mastermind. He has proven to them that he is always up to something. And even if the thing he's asking of you now doesn't make sense, it will make sense eventually. And so here's the one-liner in verse four that I love. This, this whole donkey scenario, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now we're about to read a prophecy that happened 600 years prior. And here's what I love. Jesus, who inspires these very prophecies, is not like all of a sudden getting a donkey so that he can get on the donkey and then say, Oh, wow, no way, I just fulfilled a prophecy. How random is that? No, in fact, what Jesus is doing is orchestrating a series of events because he knows who he is. He, he inspired the prophecies. He knows that his time has come and he wants to communicate explicitly and with clarity to all who know the word of God who he truly is. And in fact, um, I want to just share with you one verse from, from Acts chapter 4. This is one of my favorite verses, um, just, just one of these verses that kind of breaks through the chaos of crisis and difficulty and shows you that God is above these things. Here's what it says. This Jesus, now speaking of the crucifixion, uh, palms, everything, all this stuff, delivered up according to the definite what? Plan, right. And the foreknowledge of God, you, you crucified And you killed by the hands of lawless men. From the foundations of the world, Scripture teaches us that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the world was even created. That's what Revelation teaches us. That there was a plan, this plan of redemption that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit had orchestrated before matter was even created. That there was a plan set in motion and that this plan, this series of events was not random. It was not haphazard. Jesus was no victim whatsoever. This was an intentional series of events, Jesus, knowing full well who he is, begins to enact certain aspects of this plan, one of which is the donkey. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21. Let's read verse 5. Here's the prophecy. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast, a burden. Now, big picture, we need to step back for a moment because 
If you are of the Jewish people in this time, you are oppressed, you are suppressed, and you are depressed. You are done. You are exhausted. The promises of God weigh on you. In fact, there is this one, um, we'll just say, theme of Old Testament prophecy that when the Messiah comes, he's not just gonna be humble, he's gonna come with vengeance and he will obliterate and eviscerate all the enemies of the nation of Israel, of God's people. And so I want you to, I want you to know something as we, as we get ready to go further into this text. The Jewish people want blood. And they don't want just any blood, they want Roman blood. They want Roman blood, not because they're just vicious people, but because these were the promises of God given to them that there will come a Messiah and anybody who rises up against God's people is literally gonna be destroyed. And so here's what they're hoping. Here's what they're expecting, that we have a plan and our plan is that there will be a military Messiah and he will come and he will shed Roman blood and he will topple this government and the Jewish people will literally begin global domination and they will rule the world ultimately with peace and justice. Nothing less than this is in their minds. This is their plan, and it's non-negotiable. But Jesus' plan was completely different, which brings us to point number three. Jesus' plan was always to die. This is what he's doing. This is why he came. Now this, I think this is one of my favorite parts of, of Palm Sunday and of Holy Week, because I think when you grow up in the church, you have this idea that Jesus is like this really gentle, meek guy who doesn't really have a lot to say and he's just really, really no, I'm sorry to offend you, right? You're, gonna, you're about to get a picture of Christ that is very different than a lot of the caricatures that many people have in their brain. And Jesus was on a mission to die and he ensured his death in four different ways. Number one, uh, he ensured his death by a loud, audacious, and provocative entrance into Jerusalem. Let's talk about this donkey for a moment. The donkey from a Roman perspective is very different than the donkey from a Jewish perspective. From a Roman perspective, if you were a military um, conqueror, you would come to your hometown victorious riding on a donkey. And as the Romans looked at Jesus, what they saw was an arrogant, pompous man riding in, declaring victory over Rome before he even began a war. Do you see that? Now, for the Jews, this is actually really different because for the Jews, the king would ride on a donkey, the Messiah, the king who would obliterate and shed the blood of Roman oppressors. So the Jews see this, and first of all, the Jewish leaders are upset because they're like, this guy has a death wish. No, he has a death plan. They don't get it. And so what happens here is the people are like, yes, finally, our leader has finally arisen. He's finally come. And they are really willing to go to battle for this guy. Like, this is a really tense political moment. You should be able to feel the tension as it mounts here. But number two, Jesus ensured his death. But number two, orchestrating a rebellion. Verse eight says this. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others, they cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. Now there's a lot more going on here than most people realize. Uh, cloaks are a symbol of submission. 
Um, when you take your cloak and you put it down in front of somebody and they walk on it, this is your way of saying, we bend the knee. Wherever you lead us, we will, we will follow. Wherever you take us, we will fight. Um, these, are, these are intense, intense actions that are political, they are religious, they are revolutionary in nature, and Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. The palms, the palms would be an equivalent to our American flag. So I want you to imagine our dark enemy to the north, Canada, um, as we talk about them. Uh, <laughs> Never gets old for me, although you're like, stop talking about Canada, fine. But our dark enemy to the north finally, finally takes us over. We all know they've been hiding secretly, waiting, and then they take us over. All the spies come out of, out of the woodworks, and we are finally lost. Well, there's a group of insurrectionists, and they wave our American flag. What does the American flag in that moment stand for? Not just freedom, but we want our freedom back. It's a sign of a revolution, and the palms for the Jewish people were that sign. On the Jewish coinage, palms would be put on there. And this was a sign of the promise, of the hope that one day the Jewish people were going to be in their land. They would have their Messiah who would have taken over the entire world. And they would reign over the world with righteousness and justice and peace. To the crowd, this was a symbol of revolution. To the Jewish leaders, this was a naive rebellion and all of these people were gonna be murdered by Rome. And to Rome, this was nothing less than an insurrection that needed to be squished quickly and immediately. Are you catching how politically tense these moments are? Jesus ensured his death by accepting the people's, I put this in quotes, but heretical declarations. Because to the Jewish leaders, everything that they were saying about Jesus and to him was blasphemy. But Jesus knew that even though their hearts did not understand the content of what they were saying, propositionally the words were true. And Jesus receives this, and here's what it says in verse 9. The crowds that went before him and that followed him, and you get the idea that they're everywhere all around him, shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna uh, most literally means save now. Save us now. Y you and I, by default of songs and American religious culture, are almost pre-programmed to see this as adoration, as worship. This is a plea, this is a desperate call to Jesus to be their military leader. That's what this is. It is nothing less than that. It might be more than that, but it's nothing less than that. And that what they are saying to Jesus is, save us now. We have a plan. We have an agenda. We know what our greatest problem is, and it's Rome. Jesus, save us now. And then they say, to the son of David, this is a reference back to the Messiah, this warrior, victorious king was gonna come from the lineage of David. They are acknowledging that, yes, you are technically and literally of the lineage of David, but you also are the son of David. You are this long-awaited war Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have been sent by God for us in this moment to free and release your people. Hosanna in the highest, save us to the uttermost, obliterate our enemies completely, level them to
to the ground, leave no Gentile left standing that rejects you and your people. Do you see the difference between how they probably meant this and how we read into this? This is an intense moment. And Jesus does not reject the words they're saying. Now, do they understand what Jesus is actually here to save them from? I don't have a clue. And the moment Jesus' plan diverges from their plan, they throw him out. Jesus, I don't, I don't like your idea. I don't like your agenda. I don't like your path. It's not convenient. It doesn't scratch my itch. It doesn't solve the immediate difficulty in front of me right now in the way I want it to. And so we're done with you. That's exactly what happened. Number four, Jesus ensured his death by intentionally offending everyone. So you think about the last week of his life. And I want to ask you, does this fit into your script of Jesus' last week? So the, the day before, um, Jesus comes into the city. He goes to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Before he comes into the city, do you know where Jesus wanted to go? To the temple. He had one agenda. He wanted to go to the temple. Now, in previous years, when Jesus had come to the temple, he had already made a ruckus on Passover. Jesus has a history on Passover with the temple. And so Jesus wants to go straight to the temple. So you have to understand, the crowds may slow him down. He may be fulfilling prophecies. But Jesus has a singular vision. His goal is to get to that temple. Why did he want to go to the temple? Because he was angry. He was furious. He was so upset. Every year at Passover, he comes to the temple and he's angry. And this year he's going to come in and he is going to do some pretty, pretty scary things. And people are not going to know what to do with Jesus in that moment. In fact, in Mark chapter 11, um, it says this, that Jesus, when he went into the temple at this time, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Just think about this. Nope, can't carry that. Sorry, you can't come by here. Nope, put that thing down right now. In the book of John, it says that he has a whip, and he's, we don't know if that was this time or if that was the other time, right? But we know that he went into the temple on Passover with a whip, okay? He made, and this is what the text actually tells us in John, that he took some time out and he created, he actually made a whip from scratch. That's how mad he was. Walks in the temple, flows. Have you ever, and I mean ever, once had somebody flip a table in your presence? For the sake of this sermon, I wish I did, so that I could tell you about the insanity that happens when someone does that. Have you ever had somebody walk into your home with a whip, watch stop you, right? Jesus is creating an unforgettable impression in first moment, and Jesus has had history on Passover at the temple, and they're like, oh, Jesus Christ, here he comes, right? Oh, Lord. I mean, this is a moment, okay? So he's done, and you're thinking, the disciples gotta be like, what is he doing? Oh, he's done this every year, here we go again, but he's not done. He's not done. Not only does he upset all the businessmen, he, he, go, he starts debating uh, the scribes, the elders, and the leaders, and here's what he does publicly. These are all happening publicly. He communicates to them that they have no authority over him. In fact, he has authority over them. And then he taught the people parable after parable after parable after parable after parable, and the punchline was always the same. Keep in mind, the leaders are listening. Your leaders are wrong and evil and they're going to hell and I'm the good guy. Just FYI, don't follow them, follow me. Over and over and over again. These are a very prideful, prideful group of people. 
He then goes on, he publicly exposes the secrets, the evil deeds of the scribes and the Jewish religious leaders. He starts opening up financial and political scandals that are happening amongst them. The people are talking, by the way. Jesus is living up to his, re- his reputation. Well, he, he's not done yet. He then starts publicly debating with and humiliating the Sadducees who believed in no resurrection. By the way, when you debate Jesus, who wins? Jesus does every time. And they're made to look like complete and absolute fools in front of everybody. Then in Matthew chapter 23, he gives seven damning public woes to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And I would like to just read to you um, a list of the names in just under 36 verses that Jesus calls all the leaders. Hypocrites, six times. Children of hell. Blind guides, twice, blind fools, blind men, whitewashed tombs, killer of the prophets, serpents, brood of vipers, and murderers. In 36 verses, this is what he lays out publicly, okay? He's not done. He then publicly goes to the rich, and here's what he says to them. Your offerings stink. I don't like them, and God doesn't like them. You're, not, you're barely giving anything. It's not even making you uncomfortable. And he rebukes them, and he gets all the rich people really frustrated with him. And then he tells, uh, he goes to the leaders and he goes to the people and he talks about their most sacred site in Judaism and Jewish history, the temple. And he says, "Mm, we're going to tear this thing down. It's going to be gone. And it's going to be a symbol that God is rejecting you. He's no longer with you. And now they're all upset. Then he starts talking about the most important city in all of Israel, uh, Jerusalem. And he says, oh, by the way, God also wants to leave your entire nation and he's gonna destroy your whole city and everything you've ever known that's normal is gonna be terrible. You thought it's bad now? Literally like hundreds of thousands of you are all gonna die and you're gonna wish that you were never born. Does this sound like a guy who wants to live, by the way? (laughs) After all this, go to Matthew 26. I'll put it on the screen. When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And they're like, we're pretty well, we're pretty well aware of this. Um, And the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Yep, you are. There's no way you're going to make it out of this city alive. But then verse three, Jesus gets what he wants. The plan is working because he's a strategist and a genius. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth because the people loved him and kill him. Jesus' mission was really clear. It was very simple. I will be identified as the Messiah. I will suffer. I will be killed and the Father will raise me on the third dead, and we will vindicate to heaven, hell, and humanity, all these religious leaders, that you cannot get rid of me. And I will, on this cross, I will decisively deal with your greatest foes and enemies, sin, Satan, and death, and they will no longer be able to stop you. And I will create a people that will usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth, and they will take over this place, and they will be unstoppable. And I will do things that you cannot stop because this is my plan. And I'm telling you that if Jesus would have sat down with any of the disciples and gotten their permission, they would have said, no, there's got to be a different way. But our God is a master, master strategist. On Palm Sunday, God set this plan in motion. He began to publicly make himself known to rile everyone up so that he would necessarily be killed. Why? This is the definite plan 
of God. So Ville's Church, Easter is one of those weeks where, um, I'll be honest, for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, been there, been there, Easter, resurrection, got it, got it, got it, got it. Um, one of my desires for each of us is that the beauty and the intentionality and the love of God for each one of us personally would not be lost. On Good Friday, we're gonna celebrate the fact that Jesus literally suffered under the full weight and vengeance of the wrath of God on his body and his soul and his emotions for every infraction that any of his children would ever commit. The sins of the world were placed on him in a way, in an event, an experience we could never quantify simply by the physical happenings of that moment. And that somehow that this love for each one of us um, was vindicated and validated as we celebrate at Easter that God vindicated Jesus and the resurrection and his deity and this faith by resurrecting him from the dead. And then Jesus was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people who wrote down and documented their testimonies. We are here because somebody 2,000 years ago believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus and told somebody and who told somebody who told somebody who told the person who told you about Jesus Christ and discipled you. Like, this is an amazing week to remember that our faith is rooted in historical events and profound and amazing things were planned and implemented by God for you personally. And I think one of the things that is most central for believers is to regularly coming back to what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, to remember this and root yourself in it and to ground yourself in this. And, and, and I'll be honest, this is one of those weeks where you will never in the entire year find people who are more willing to talk about God and come to church with you than they are this week. This is one of the most incredible weeks that you have to not just savor what God has done for you, but to actually take initiative and steps for people who would literally never come to church any day of the year except for Easter. Even next to Christmas, Easter blows them all away. And it's an interesting reality in our culture that spiritual conversations are increasingly really, really hard to come by. But you know what people will do? It'd be weird if you talked to them about Jesus, but they'll come with you to church. I don't know why that is. It's a very backwards reality in my brain culturally. Um, but one of the great joys that we have even in this season is not just to savor, but to give it away and to build bridges and to help people and to talk about what the real meaning of Easter is and to be a light. Uh, somebody in your life at the right moment, at the right time, loved you enough to have a conversation with you to make the message of Jesus Christ clear. And this is one of the most beautiful seasons to do that. In a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion. And one of my prayers for you this week is we celebrate Good Friday. It will be a, a communion service focused on remembering what Jesus Christ did in space, time, and history for us. But my desire is that your gratitude and appreciation to God for what he has done for you, not just in salvation, but throughout your whole life, giving you purpose and mission, being able to bring God's kingdom to earth, hope and passion, the Holy Spirit who sustains you, literally everything you know of reality is shaped the moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you are here today and have had an incredible relationship with God and it all roots back to these moments. And this is why Jesus says, when you gather together, remember, Remember what I've done. Come back to these moments because if these things didn't happen and you never trusted in Christ, God knows where you might be today. And so my desire for you this week is that um, the cross, which is honestly for so many Christians just like a, here we go again, that it would take a new, beautiful, meaningful, vibrant experience in your soul.